and welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Uh, let me just say that we are the new, I don't even think my producer Donnie knows this, neither does as, uh, uh, many of the people at The Ringer, but we are uh, the NAACP Image Award nominated podcast, Bakari Sellers Podcast. Look at that, Kai Wright, you're the first person to hear that and hear me <laughs> say it out loud. We just got that notification. But we have none other than Kai Wright with us today. Like I told you, we like to bring smart people here to talk about real serious issues. And uh, Kai Wright is fitting into that category uh, better than most. How are you doing today, my brother? I'm good. Congratulations. You know, uh, it's yeah. light work. You know what I'm talking about? This is, you know, wake up and that's what you expect to happen. <laughs> Look, my show is kind of unique because we ask all our guests the same first question. And we like our guests to walk us through the arc of their careers. And you've been doing the work that you've been doing now for years. Walk us through each stop of your journalistic career and talk about the work you do right now with Notes from America. What is it and how did you get that opportunity in particular? Wow. Okay. Well, you know, I'm an old man, Bakari, so it took us a minute. Well, your skin uh, looks good. It looks like you've just been drinking your water and minding your business. I do. I do what I can. I do what I can. <laughs> um, Notes from America is a weekly gathering. I think of it as almost like a dinner party. Um, uh, we uh, are making live radio in these days of on demand. You can get it, get it as a podcast, but we love for you to listen live. Um, where we gather Sunday evenings, six Eastern public radio stations around the country. And we try to talk about what it means to live in a plural society, to live in a country that uh, has a whole lot of different kind of folks in it. And um, uh, and what does that mean politically? What does that mean for us as individuals? Um, how do we do that? And is it, and, you know, I will say one of the core questions in it is, is it a possibility? Is that a thing we can do? Like, is the idea of the United States a viable idea in 2024 um, is for me a question on the table. And so um, that's what we do. We invite listeners to join the conversation across all the platforms. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. It grew out of um, a reporting project that started during the 2016 election um, where um I was reporting with a team of folks just on, you know, trying to understand that moment in American history. Um, and that is where this project grew out of and kind of kept going and kept evolving. Um, and I'd say like how that connects to my career in general and blind spot is just throughout my journalism career, which, you know, I guess started when I was 15 at, oh, wow. uh, the Indianapolis so, Reporter. It's funny. I, I, I get a lot of journalists of a certain age that come on here and talk about they started journalism when they were 15 or 14. No, you were just nosy. That's what you were. <laughs> you were a nosy ass teenager. And now you look back at it and say, no, I wasn't nosy. I, was, I had a journalistic. <laughs> I mean, I had a, I had a job. That was, that was, <laughs> I was I was an intern. I was an intern at the uh, the black community newspaper in Indianapolis, Indianapolis Reporter. Um, and uh and yeah, I was nosy. I'm not gonna lie, I was. I wanted to know what was going on, but like they let me be. Um, but like from there, all the way through, a lot of my questions uh, as a journalist have been driven by what is happening in my community, what's happening around me, what's happening in my life. Um, and so, for a good hunk of my early career, not when I was 15, but when I got out of college. Um, uh, I started covering uh, the AIDS epidemic because as a black gay man in the mid nineties, um, 
it was what was around me. Um, it was the story that felt very pressing and urgent and important. Um, and so a lot of my career has been responding to what is around me. And this, this that coverage is no different. Man, I mean, that 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 is, I hope the younger people listening or those individuals who want to find a new career are listening to the fact that you kind of toiled in a vineyard for a little while, um, but always followed your heart. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. We'll get to your new project shortly, but I want to remind listeners about the height of the AIDS crisis, like we just kind of yeah. talked about in the 80s and 90s and the stories of Black gay men during that era and your reporting on the issue over time. Can you paint the picture, so to speak, of that era and how the intersection of race, inequality, yeah. homophobia, um, inequitable access to healthcare, all converge to create the perfect storm of human tragedy? And, 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 the, and, you know, talk about some of the darkest moments you covered. Yeah, I mean, so for me, you know, where I step into the story was in the mid nineties. And this was a moment where um, it was, uh, two different things happening. On one land, it was a very hopeful moment in the history of AIDS. This was the onset of treatment. This was, you know, there had been some treatments, um, AZT starting in the late 80s, but it was really like 95 that the drugs that now save people's lives started to really hit the market and people had access to them. Um, and the death rates just started to plummet. And so I was a young gay man in DC um, meeting people, you know, my elders who were literally getting up out of the deathbed, you know, um, and having these Lazarus stories. Um, and it was a really pivotal moment. And there was a lot of relief and excitement in the queer communities in particular about that moment. But what became pretty clear to me as a Black gay man at that moment, too, was it was the moment of divergence, um, where um, the... If you had access to the healthcare system, if you were a certain kind of person, um, that means class, that means race, that means all the things that define so much about access in our society. Um, you could get these drugs, and you could start, and you could start to see uh, a light at the end of the tunnel. This epidemic that had been killing people for, you know, at that point, twenty years, um, and um, and if you didn't. You were, it, it was still 1985, and uh, the infection rates and the deaths amongst Black people and amongst Black gay men in particular continued apace, and that was a really jarring moment, you know, and as a young man myself to be like, oh, wow, you know, on one hand, I'm looking at, you know, we're hearing this story about how everything's getting better, and on the other hand, 
like people are still dying and still and still getting infected and still you know and so in the in the public conversation became you know oh this is we're turning the corner on this epidemic and that in fact that impacted the money that was available for dealing with the epidemic and the activism that was all of the resources started to wane um and so for me that was a provocation um to really begin and to join um, folks in the black community for that had for a while been saying, you know what, we have to, we now as a community, as black people have to own this epidemic, whether we want to or not, because we're going to, no one's going to save us, but ourselves. Um, so there's a, it was a really intense moment through the late nineties and early two thousands of activists and me as a journalist working with some of those folks um, to just to try to push that ball. Man, I, that just sounds like a, in D.C. probably, and you just correct me if I'm wrong, but D.C. was probably one of the epicenters of having to fight this battle. Not, and I think probably one of the more important areas, I mean, not just because it's black, um, but because it sits in the shadow one of the federal government. And during the 80s and 90s, you had even some of the most progressive people like Bill Clinton, who didn't quite necessarily, they were progressive on the issue, but not as progressive as people would be, be today. Yeah. Um, the other end of that was Ronald Reagan. Um, and two, with black folk, you have a lot of black conservatism that doesn't necessarily understand socially the issue or care about it. Yeah. I mean, what, there's one of the episodes of the show uh, goes is specifically focuses on that question of like what we in the black community were doing at the time um, uh, from the early 80s on. Um, and, um, and the unavoidable fact that as a community, we just didn't respond um, in time. Uh, we just didn't. Uh, and what are the reasons for that? Um, and and we get into that in some depth. There's a great scholar in a great book. Her name is Kathy Cohen. Uh, and uh, she wrote a book called The Boundaries of Blackness. Um, and that is a history of the political response to the epidemic. She now studies a lot of the sort of Black Lives Matter movement and um, is, you know, is, is a political scientist of some renown. Um, but this was her dissertation. Um, and she talks about um it, she explains the conservatism and explains the respectability politics that paralyzed us in the 80s, that um it's easy to simply point the finger at, but there are reasons behind it, you know. Um the epidemic, this virus came for the country, for our community, for our, this virus came along at such an opportune time for things to fall apart, you know. Um, and for the black community, it, the 80, it was an opportune time for something like this, where Ronald Reagan, as you point out, had come in with a really aggressive agenda to take apart the civil rights movement. And the focus of a lot of black leadership was on that at a time when people were tired of being treated like second-class citizens, despite all the things that they had achieved in life in some of these neighborhoods, in, in Black cities like D.C. and New York, um, and really just didn't want to hear about, like, <laughs> you mean there's gonna, there's some virus that is killing gay people and drug users, and we got to care about that at this time? We don't have time for that. We're fighting Ronald Reagan. We're not going to talk to you about that. Y'all should stop being gay and stop using drugs. <laughs> uh so it was a it was a tough time for this. It was a, it was an opportune time for this virus to come along uh, and take advantage of 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 the blind spots, as it were. Um, and that was true for the country too. You know, I mean, it was a moment of optimism 
Uh, that's how Reagan got over is a lot of Americans really, really wanted to be optimistic in the early 80s. All facts. Blind spot, blind spot sounds like a natural segue here. Uh, <laughs> blind spot, the plague in the shadows. Talk to me about your new project. First, the title. How did it come about? And what picture are you painting for the audience with the title of this project? So the the blind spot part, it's the second, this is season three of a franchise that um, WNYC and the History Channel do. Um, and every season it's looks at, you know, some something in history that's like, if we had that, what if we had looked at this differently? What if we had seen everything we needed to see at the time? Um, and so this season where it's, it is these early days of the AIDS epidemic. Um, and, you know, for us, the team working on it is like there has been the story of this epidemic has has largely been told through the lens of white gay men um and that's i don't and i want to be very clear that like that's uh, it, it, this they were white gay men were devastated by this as well <laughs> you know and because of homophobia nobody gave a shit about them either um so um that is not um to say that that they don't that that part of the story doesn't deserve and need more attention, but there's a huge part of the story that just never gets told, um, and that's the stuff I've been talking about: the epidemic amongst Black people, the epidemic among women, the epidemic among drug users, the racial divide in the gay community, and the epidemic. And and in all of that, we learn these valuable lessons that I think are relevant to a whole lot about society today. You know. Um, that uh health public health disease uh these are um these are medical questions but they are very often social questions and hiv was was a was a key example of you know this was a social epidemic as much as it was a medical one um that it exploited all of our blind spots all of our inequities around race and gender and poverty um and we, you know, it, I, I'll say one of the one of the interviews I did in the course of this, I was talking to somebody who was, you know, he'd been an AIDS activist since very early in the epidemic, somebody I've known a long time, Phil Wilson, um, and he and I was like, oh, you know, do you feel like we've learned from the epidemic now? You know, um, how where do we sit today? And he said, um, no, I feel like I have never felt so so pessimistic as I do today. Now, this is a man who has cheated death multiple times. Um, he has been HIV positive since 1981, you know, um, who uh, has seen some things um, and um, and the experience of COVID and the Trump era made him realize, oh, we didn't actually learn any of the lessons of the early epidemic um, and the idea of this, of social disease. Um, so I'm rambling a bit, but that's the that 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 is that was that is the 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 lens we're coming from. Well, um, I mean, along that same line, along that same line, why do you? I mean, people ask, why is this project necessary today? That's and that's it, you know. And I think it's one to remind us of that of the history of those lessons that we clearly didn't learn when we look at the response to COVID. Um, but um, it's also then the flip side of that for me. Um, one of the really cool things um, that is useful, you know, as somebody, I feel very overwhelmed right now. Like, I, like in these times, I just feel like it's between the climate and the fascism and, the, you know, name the list of ills that I don't feel like I can do anything about. Um, and I just want to go hide. Um, 
there is in this history, all of these people who felt that way in the 80s about this epidemic, people like Phil, you know, Phil Wilson, who I just mentioned, who were burying, you know, at going to funeral in their 20s, going to funerals once a week, you know, burying friends and loved ones. And, um, and um and no one cared and it felt so overwhelming um and uh they figured out how to respond by leading with love and this sounds rhetoric but it's so to me important like it's such an important lesson from this history they led with love and said okay well who who and what around me can i touch and change you know um yeah. There's an episode of the podcast that's all about the pediatric ward of Harlem Hospital, um, one of the actually epicenters of the epidemic in the early 80s, where kids, because of the crack epidemic, infants, you know, were left to live and die on the ward, on this ward in Harlem Hospital for their whole lives. Um, uh, infants who were born with HIV um, and lived and died the whole time there. And... Um, People may remember the sort of famous moment of Princess Diana showing up at Harlem Hospital and picking up the baby mm -hmm. who had AIDS. Um, and that was like a big moment for her and her image. Um, but the reality behind that was there were all these nurses, you know, who had just decided it wasn't their job. No one gave them any resources to do it. Harlem Hospital had been totally defunded. And there were all these nurses who were like, you know what, we're going to make a home for these kids because they're here and they're dying and the least we can do, you know, and it basically was a hospice ward. And they spent yeah. all personal resources and personal time to create that place. Um, and that's the kind of thing that for me is important, like to remember and learn like, okay, well, I may not be able to fix the climate on my own, you know, and I may not be able to stop the march of fascism, you know, but like, what can I do here outside my door with the people in my life and in my community? How can I like show up? Uh, there's a lot of that in this history that's really inspiring to me. I mean, that's powerful. That's a powerful sentiment. I mean, I thank you for that. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.
I feel like when we talk about HIV AIDS, I feel like we've made progress both as a country and as a people in terms of black folk. That's Do right. we have a handle on this with the medical innovation and cultural evolution, or are there still major blind spots, both culturally and policy-wise, that we need to address and correct? The answer is both yes and no. <laughs> um, you know, uh, there is no question that, you know, since I started covering this epidemic in the mid-90s to today, I mean, there's just been dramatic and remarkable improvements and change um, in all of, on every measure. Um, you know, I take a pill every day right now to keep myself from getting HIV, right? Like that's a thing you can do um, if you have access to it. Um, we have seen death rates drop dramatically. Even in the last few years, death rates continue to drop globally. Um, but there are 39 million people still living with HIV today. Um, and um, not all of them have access to treatment. One of the things we've really come to understand scientifically is like if everybody who has HIV gets treatment, that's the that's a, the functional end of the epidemic because you can suppress viral load, and people might be familiar with this from COVID. You can suppress viral load to the point where like it's just it it can exist in the background of your life and you cannot transmit it to others um, with treatment with today's treatment. But not everybody has access to it, and so I think we still have a really clear example of the challenge. Right, like if we could get Everybody who can get access to healthcare in, in the country, in the world, you know, HIV can be a manageable thing, but not yeah. everybody can get access to healthcare in this, in this world. And so that remains. So we've made medical progress. Talk culturally. I mean, it, 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 I guess, it, you know, how culturally have Black people evolved on the issue? And are we, are we there yet? It seems like the pockets of homophobia have, have somewhat dissipated. Or yes, again, yes and no, you know, um, I think that um, culturally we are in a way different place as a community on the specificity of HIV, right? Like on understanding, on leadership, like you could walk into the NAACP and to, you know, many churches, uh, you know, all of the sort of institutions of Black America and have an open and fruitful and honest uh, conversation about the epidemic. Um, and that is uh, uh, important and a great advancement at the same time. Um, and, you know, um, on the questions of homophobia, the Black community has evolved in the same ways that the rest of the country has. Um, um, that said, <laughs> you know, um, I think the what Kathy Cohen calls the hierarchy of respectability in our country, in our in our community remains, you know, um, and uh, there it remains the case that people who um, uh, we, we, we can we can we can feel bad, you know, we can have universal empathy for women who contract HIV. Um, through sex, but not through drug use, you know? Um, we can have universal empathy, you know, um, for, uh, we, we have gotten rid of largely the pediatric AIDS epidemic, but we can have universal empathy for the idea of um, an innocent child who was um, infected with HIV. But have we really wrestled with the um, pain of the crack epidemic and the ideas about drug users that it created in our community um, uh, and the support that they need versus the ostracization that they get too often. Um, so 
yeah, we've come a long way, you know, um, but on the on HIV specifically, but on those underlying things that got in the way about who we're really willing to embrace in our community and who we're really able to rally behind. Um, we got we got we got work to do still. I guess that's reality. You're not, not too high, not too low. Tell me this. What do you want listeners to get from this project? Well, I, I'm hoping that um, first and foremost, they just, you know, th they meet people that they wouldn't have otherwise met, you know, um, and that's a lot of in my work, uh, uh, whether it's Notes from America or this that I want is like, I just, you know, I hope I can introduce you to people who are, I find are incredible and wonderful and compelling that you wouldn't have otherwise met. And that I mean, it's, it's, it's refreshing. Time. I mean, your work is refreshing because we get so caught up in Twitter and social media and we feel like we know people and we don't, but you're introducing us to people that need to be that's in our right. world to enhance it. That's that. Thank you for saying that. And that's exactly it for me. You know, I mean, there is, it, it, we're in a, a nominally hyper-connected world that so many of us experience actually is hyper-disconnected um, because it is, you know, mediated via these platforms and mediated via um, capitalism, right? Like mediated via people who want to sell those connections back and forth to us um, and not um, through, you know, real human connection. And so that is a lot of what we're doing on Notes from America every week is trying to connect human beings and there are human beings in this history that I hope you'll be able to connect with as a listener that may help you see, you know, your cousin or your uncle or your brother or your neighbor differently um, when you hear something in their story um, and prompt you to go have a different kind of conversation with them than you have had. Um, and then the other thing I hope people get is, is again, that, that note that I'm getting from it of like, what is, what does it mean to make change? What does it mean to engage with the world around you in an overwhelming time politically? Um, sometimes it means uh, reaching out and 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 trying to change something in, the, in people's lives who are right there next to you. Let me ask you the two most important questions. I could talk to you all day before I get you out of here though, but how did this project change you, if at all? Wow. <laughs> um, you know, it picks scabs, if I'm honest, you know, yeah. like I, um, I had, I covering HIV and, you know, sexual politics in general and its role in the black community, like that had been such a big part of my life from the mid nineties till, you know, uh, you know, for about 15 years and some, you know, roughly 2008, I wrote a book in 2008, um, about young black gay men. Um, and, um, I kind of turned the page after that, you know, um, both professionally and personally. I kind of put those questions to the side. And I don't know that I had fully resolved a lot of it for myself, to be honest, as I've come back to this and had to engage with people I knew from the past, you know, like I've had to conversations with people I haven't talked to in a decade. Um, it picks some scabs, you know, that mm. I'm so I'm not quite sure how it changed me because I think I've got a lot of processing to do now that I'm. And that was true for a lot of people that I talked to also, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people where we were like, you know, they'd be like, oh man, you're talking about something 40 years ago and it would suddenly be really present tense for them, you know, and you could tell that they just hadn't, there's a lot of work, they hadn't covered a lot of it, you know. And the trauma is, that trauma is real and trauma is not the punch, but trauma is the 40 years that you react to the punch. You yeah. Know? It's, it's how you emote, how you react. 
Last question for you, arguably the most important question I ask people, how can people find and support Blind Spot and how people keep up with your work? Wherever you get your podcasts, um, check it out. Um, uh, and um, I would hope that uh, you'll join us for Notes from America as well as a podcast, also wherever you get your podcasts, or you know, on, if you listen to public radio on, on your public radio station on Sunday evenings, and if you hear something you like, you know, if you if you meet someone in either place uh, that touches you, then just tell somebody about it. You know, um, that's the, you know, that's with this work. It's it is such intimate stuff, and it really is person to person. So, if it touches you, tell somebody. Kai, you're a beautiful soul, beautiful person. Kai Wright, thank you for joining Bukari Souls Podcast. Y'all check out Blind Spot, The Plague, and The Shadows. Make yourself uncomfortable, then get comfortable and meet some new people. Have a great day. Thank, Thank you, you so much, man. <laughs>